They've gotten away with bloody murder. They have stolen our content. They continue to steal our content without paying for it. And they publish rubbish. It's a real problem, and it's a problem to democracy. Now, the first one to do something about it is Twitter. Thank goodness. And they're just putting a warning, or sometimes they're muting even the president of the United States tweets. Mm. Hello there and welcome back to the Oxford PPE Society podcast. We are releasing these episodes every Friday at 9am until the end of Trinity term in June and you can find them via our website, our SoundCloud or our Facebook page. Every week we will be in discussion with leading figures from the fields of philosophy, politics or economics. We hope that they will provide regular enjoyment in these uncertain times. I'm Leon Nascau, and for this episode of the final week of Trinity term we are joined by two talented journalists. Diane Francis is the editor-at-large at the National Post, one of Canada's leading broadsheets. She also has a column in the paper and writes about technology, finance and current affairs. Today we're speaking about the future of journalism. Can print media survive? Can digital media thrive? And how journalism should engage with politics and tackle fake news. Asking the questions is Lois Heslop, the outgoing editor-in-chief at the Oxford Blue, a new newspaper founded in January by Oxford students that has also been nominated for Best Newcomer by the National Student Press Awards. Let's get on with our final episode of Term. Hello and welcome back to the Oxford PPE Society podcast. I'm Lois Heslop, a physics undergraduate at Lady Margaret Hall and the guest host for this episode. I'm the founder and outgoing editor-in-chief of Oxford's first new student newspaper in 30 years, The Oxford Blue. In today's episode, we're joined by journalist Diane Francis. Diane was appointed editor of Canada's Financial Post in 1991, the first woman editor of a national daily newspaper in Canada, a position she held until the paper was sold in 1998. She is currently editor-at-large of the Canadian National Post, in addition to being a columnist, best-selling author, investigative journalist and television commentator. In this episode, we talk social media and the decline of print journalism, fake news and her favourite three words, curiosity, outspokenness and courage. Has COVID changed your journalism much, do you think? Well, it hasn't at all. You know, I'm a bit of a hermit, uh, being a writer. I, I mostly worked at home, even when I, well, except when I was running a newspaper for about 10 years. But I, I basically, you work alone, you work in cafes, you work on your laptop. Uh, you know, I write, I read, I research. I'm alone all the time anyway, and I'm social, but I'm not a social butterfly, put it that way. So the only thing that it's uh, prevented me from doing, but of course my illness did too, is traveling. I was traveling a lot more. I was going to Ukraine, I was going to Europe, I was going to Asia, I was going all over the US. So, you know, conferences and speeches and things like that. So that's that's grounded me mm. for a while. You you were editor-in-chief and I, to, of, of, was it the National Post and the Financial yeah. Um, and you're now editor, yeah. And you're now editor at large. Why did you decide to make that transition? Well, uh, I was the editor of the Financial Post when it was bought by Conrad Black and the Pearson Group, Financial Times, and we turned it into a daily financial newspaper in Canada. It was the first daily financial mm. newspaper. So uh, I was put on the board of directors, and then I was made the editor in '91. And then we sold it for a lot of money in 1998 and it was folded into a startup called National Post. So it became the mm-hmm. inside business section of the National Post, which Conrad Black owned until he ran out of money. 
Have you enjoyed, I guess you've had a varied career and being an author too, have you enjoyed being freelance or, you know, on your own time more or, or less than, than being in the office and being an editor? Well, uh, I like being editor. It was, it was a very different skill set. It was managing people. I had started off my working life as an entrepreneur. And uh, my first husband and I immigrated to Canada and started a commercial art studio. And so we were running a business with people, a very, very similar creative content business, but doing management stuff and financial stuff and all of that. So it's very different. But I, as I say, I'm a, I'm a, I think I'm, I'm a bit of a loner. I can socialize and I like to socialize, as I said, but I'm, I'm a loner. I think if you're a writer, you're a loner. So I, I taught myself how to write and I taught myself being a housewife at home initially. And then I started to get jobs in the business and then work my way to where, where I did. But, you know, it's, a, it's, it's not a committee. It's not a consensual uh, job if you're doing writing and commentary. So you have to have very, a lot of, I've always had a lot of discipline. And you're presumably working remotely now. Yes, and I mostly have, I mostly have. I mean, I, I had an office at the National Post, but I think I was there twice a month just to say hi and, and see a few people. But basically I was on the road out gathering stories, interviewing people, working on books, giving speeches. You know, I, I just sort of a freelancer by nature, I think. It seems that so many journalists are now having to work remotely, you know, not by choice, but by the crisis. Um, yes. and, and many media outlets seem to be shifting their business online. How do you think this is gonna change going forwards? And do you think print media is going to survive long-term? Well, I think this is a, another dreadful blow to print media, quite frankly. The real blow was dealt to us in 2004 when Google was invented. And Google, I think Google was the beginning of the end of the newspaper world as we knew it traditionally and the radio and TV world too, I might say. And so as, as content has shifted to uh, the tech world and away from traditional media proprietors, we're slowly going broke, burning our furniture to stay alive, quite frankly. And newspapers are becoming like a football team, like Arsenal, the plaything of very rich people who don't care how much money they lose. So in the United States, the two you know, wonderful newspapers, the New York Times and the Washington Post, are both owned by two of the richest men in the world. And they don't care if they lose money and they're, they're, you know, they're in favor of very good journalism. So unfortunately, that's, that's what's happened. And by the way, I don't believe it should have happened. It didn't need to have happened if the newspaper world had been smarter. But that's maybe another topic. But why do you think they haven't adapted? Are there business models they've just not changed as the times have changed? Well, I think that uh, back in 2004, I was working for the National Post. I was the editor-at-large. I did a uh, fellowship at Harvard, and I learned all about the new media. Back in 2004, I was one of the first investors in Amazon, so it's given me an absolutely luxurious, wonderful lifestyle. <laughs> but apart from that, Amazon and Alphabet, Google became Alphabet. But I wrote a memorandum in 2004 when I got back from Harvard, and I warned the proprietors please do not ever buy another newspaper, another radio or TV station. Do not expand. Join forces with all of the other publishers and sue for copyright fees. Your content is being stolen from you without being paid for and you're allowing it. And there is a movement afoot to get organized and do that. If you don't do that, you will perish because they will steal all of our advertising. And I also said at the same time, 
while you do that, instead of buying another printing press, invest in Google and, and these other companies. And they didn't take my advice. And three years later, they were bankrupt. And I did very well because I bought the stock. Why do you think they didn't adapt? Were they? It was so obvious to me. But you see, I'm a business writer first and foremost. And I was an entrepreneur. So I understood the business model of Google. Nobody else did. They just said, mm. gee, uh, let's go Google something. And I always thought as a business writer, when I'm using a company name as a verb, I should invest in it. So I started to look at it and I talked to a couple of people at Google and I said, what is the business model? And they said, well, the business model is to give away content for free and sell advertising around it. And I said, oh my God, you're going to eat the newspaper world alive. And that's exactly what they did. And then of course, they're doing it in broadcast. They're doing it with you know, they've done it with YouTube and, and so on and so forth. So this is how the world has changed. It needn't have happened if everybody had gotten together and said, you will pay us a fee for our content. Micro fee, didn't matter. And then they would have shared in the advertising revenue. By the way, and ironically, uh, Rupert Murdoch, who's not one of my favorite journalistic champions, was the guy who knew about this. And he tried to organize the newspaper world and they didn't. He was right. Do you think journalists don't like working together? Well, I think they didn't want to work together. They didn't want to share information. And I think also they were worried about antitrust problems, you know, ganging up and that sort of thing in the United States. But that shouldn't have stopped them. That should never have stopped them. And now they're, you know, all going out of business as that under that format. Now, those brand names are coming back digitally, but the revenue they can earn from digital advertising is peanuts. It's not enough to sustain the kinds of investigative journalism and expertise and curation that they have always been responsible for that the Facebooks aren't. Do you think with the abundance of, of fake news, people, people do see print media as more kind of trustworthy. Do you think online media can overcome this and whether journalists can beat the fake news? Well, I think the only way the online media can do it is if they're forced legally to curate all content that appears on their platforms and that they are legally recognized in every country they operate in as publishers, not platforms. Yes, they're platforms, but they're publishers. They're republishing things. We couldn't just republish an article in the Financial Post today that we didn't edit, that we didn't fact check, that we couldn't stand behind, that wasn't hate speech and so on. The same with all the traditional media outlets, but they just publish it. Now, the first one to do something about it is Twitter. Thank goodness. And they're just putting a warning or sometimes they're muting even the president of the United States tweets. Mm. And so this is the beginning of the understanding that they have a responsibility. They've gotten away with bloody murder. They have stolen our content. They continue to steal our content without paying for it. And they publish rubbish. It's a real problem. And it's a problem to democracy. Did you agree with Twitter's decision to, on that decision on Trump's recent tweets? 100%. Not banning it, but, but putting the... Uh... I've written several times in the past that when he was inciting violence, he should have been under the rules of Twitter users. He should have been booted off the site altogether. And they have precedence for that. They've kicked a lot of people off who have bullied, who've incited violence, who've agreed with violence. All of these things that president has done, and he's gotten away with it. And the, the excuse Twitter always gave was, well, we have to give some latitude to the president of the United States. And Facebook does nothing. Facebook is a real menace. I think Facebook is is the worst of the, of, the, of the tech companies. What do you think about social media generally? Do you think it's been a positive thing or an, even an extension of journalism or not at all? 
Well, I think it's a nice, uh, it's, an, it's a good connector for people. It's a social thing. It's a way people can organize. They start a Facebook page, they start a cause, they start a company, they sell products. But the problem is that they have not been forced to meet the responsibilities. When you are media, when, whether you want to call yourself social media platform or your legacy media print form, you have a responsibility not to produce hate, not to incite violence, not to be inaccurate. You know, you don't have to be balanced, but you know, and they have fulfilled none of those requirements at all. So they have become a forum for propaganda, for hate, for recruitment of terrorism, for all kinds of terrible things, for stalking of people. You know, they just have not put the police on the street. In that regard, to me, it's a scourge until they behave. And once they behave, look, it's convenient, it's cheaper, people can get their news very quickly. People don't, you know, we're not having trees cut down. I mean, all of those things are pluses, but they're overridden to me by the recklessness and irresponsibility of not curating the content that they carry. Your Twitter bio says your anti-stupidity, which I really like. <laughs> How do you think we can tackle this as journalists? the fake news, the constant stream of stupidity coming out of the internet. I think that uh, journalists should stay, stick true to their mission, and that is to curate their content and so on, and to out people that are inaccurate or hateful or inciting violence and that sort of thing. From my little podium, I try to influence policy. So I've written in the United States in some of the thinky-tanky kind of journals and in other outlets and certainly in my syndicated column across Canada in favor of government policies that force social media to be as responsible in what content they publish as we have to be. So it's a pol to me, it's a policy issue. We've got to keep pushing for proper copyright rules. Now, interestingly, Rupert Murdoch, not surprisingly, has got Australia to agree with him. So they might become one of the first jurisdictions to enforce a copyright share agreement onto all of the social media tech companies. And that would be a model for the rest of us to copy. Do you think journalism and print media has become more polarized along party lines since social media? Social media has amplified the polarizations that have always been there. And, you know, just being incendiary and, and being provocative or being disgustingly yucky or whatever, they get lots of audience. And so it is weighted the extremists more than was the case when we had people supervising the content that the public saw. Now, what people talked about on the street is a whole other thing or over the water cooler. That was not regulated, nor should it be. But when you allow it to get into the public domain through social media or media, traditional media, that's when the public interest has to weigh in. And that's when accuracy and hate and all those things should be eliminated. So, I think that the polarization's always been there. I mean, that's the history of the world. But I think that the amplification has been aided and abetted by social media, for sure. How do you think that journalism has responded to this increased polarization? I, I feel like that the Republicans are becoming more Republican in America, and it's all separating. Do you think journalism and print media has a responsibility to not engage with that? Or do you think it's the opposite? Well, it depends on the, I mean, you know, journalism is there not to serve a higher purpose. It's there to serve the audience that buys their stuff. That's unfortunately the way it is. So if you have a highly educated liberal audience like the New York Times or the Washington Post, 
obviously your bias is going to be in that direction and your, your uh, adversity is going to be against the extremists on the other side. But the New York Post or the Fox News, their audiences are not liberal and they're not uh, temperate. And so they serve up what that audience wants. And so, you know, it's really always been up to other people. I've always looked at newspapers and I've been in them for 50 years. I've always looked at every newspaper and I've worked for a number of them and I've written for a number of them. They all have biases. Everybody has biases. You know, there's the Telegraph, the Tory graph, right? There's the Times, there's the Sun, there was the News of the World, that horrible brag. You know, all, they all had their extremist positions politically and they attracted it and they fed back that to the audience that felt the same way. So each one of them was a feedback loop for an audience that was different than the other, which was their business model. And so that doesn't change. But what has to change is there has to be some rules here. They can't lie and they can't incite violence and they can't spew hatred. And that's really all. Apart from that, everything can be as is. What do you think about cancel culture when people's actions in the past are discovered or rediscovered and they're kind of cancelled online on social media. You know, I, Boris Johnson's or David Cameron's actions with a pig at university were, were dug up. That, that, is a, that is a sign of the fact that everybody now is a public figure. Social media has made everybody an editor, a writer, a photographer, and a public figure. Their public may be tiny, maybe just their buddies, but whatever they post is public. And so they have to behave like a public figure and that stuff is never expunged. So on one hand, it's not a matter of fair or unfair. I think people just always should have behaved themselves, but it used to only apply to a David Cameron who was in public life, but everybody's in public life now. That's the difference. So you have a 16 year old kid who sends, you know, horny pictures to the boyfriend and she wants to be Supreme Court Justice of the United States. I don't think so. That cancels her out. There's a character flaw there. And the character flaw was not so much the porny pictures, but posting them. What in the world is a person thinking who's doing that? I don't disagree with that. I'm pretty harsh on that. Just like, you know, and I guess it's because I'm a cynical journalist who has pilloried many public figures, whether they're CEOs or regulators or politicians. They're fair game, but everybody is now. You mentioned you've done some pretty public takedowns of figures. What are the favorite stories you've written and, and what kind of kickback have you had from these? Well, you know, it's, I, I've always been fortunate enough to work for large journalistic organizations that had a very strict curation process, that a gauntlet that I'd have to pass through if I was going to do something, to slag someone, for instance for something they've done. We have to have evidence. We have the same libel and slander laws that Britain do, which is very onerous. The US doesn't quite, but we do. So you have to basically prove in court what you said about someone, if you called them a liar or a coward or a cheat or whatever. Now, politics is different. That's a matter of opinion. You can call their policies stupid, but you can't call them stupid. So, you know, you can write around the issue. So I, having worked for large organizations, I became emboldened to be able to take on bigger and bigger targets with their help and their legal advice and the editorial backing. And then if once the story was published, and I've had many people resign their public life as a result of my stories directly. I've had guys go to jail and be charged as a result of my exposés. All of that was backed 100% by my, my journalistic enterprise. I stood behind us. So I was very fortunate. But someone taking shots at someone 
who doesn't have the evidence, you know, just has a little blog, could be ruined in Canada or in Britain by lawsuits because they chase you, they go after you, they run you to ground and they can take your house, they can sue you for everything you have. You really have to have armor on to take on these things. And I was fortunate to be given the armor and the tools. Do you think you developed resilience across your career? Was that an important skill? I have skin like an elephant. When you're in the opinion world, in the opinion space or the investigative space, you have to grow a real elephant skin. You know, a lot of journalists don't have to. And that's not journalism itself. I'm not saying that people who do what I did, I was investigative and, you know, I wrote four books on white collar crime. I helped close two stock exchanges in, in Canada and clean up the sewer and the other ones. So, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was a crusade for me and, and, and it worked. But, you know, I was sued. I've been probably sued for what they call notice of libel. I probably have had 150 or 200 notices of libel. And that's usually done just to frighten you off. And of course, when you're working for organizations such as mine who had integrity and power, it didn't frighten us off. Never went to court. I never settled out of court, ever. Because you really have to know what you're saying. You have to be very responsible about it. You said you were self-taught. Would you be able to talk a little bit about, about your early career and, and how you built up those skills to, to get where you are? Well, I'll give you, I'll give you the 60-second uh, bio. <laughs> uh, I was born in Chicago. I went to university very early. I was a good student. I loved writing. I wanted to be a novelist. I wanted to be William Faulkner. I loved the words. I loved English. After just one semester in university, I met a, a charming Englishman who was on a green card in the U.S. He was a commercial artist, very creative, very lovely, terrific guy. We fell in love. I quit university, and it was during the Vietnam War, and he was going to be drafted. And he hadn't been conscripted in Britain because he'd missed it by a year. So he came and he immigrated to the U.S., and he was going to be drafted, and there was no way he was going to go in that silly war for a country that wasn't even his, for a war that was stupid. So we immigrated to Canada. Then we started a business. I went to secretarial college because I didn't have any university degree, worked at a job, and then he and I started our own business in Toronto, and we made a big success of it. We did that, then I had my kids, and I stayed at home, got involved in local politics because I'm a busybody, you know, as an activist. And then I decided that instead of running for office, that journalism was more powerful than any office holder. So I went to a night school course. The guy said, you don't need to go to school. You're a natural. There's a little job at a little newspaper nearby. Do you want it? I'll send you there. You do a two-day tryout. So I did the two-day tryout. They gave me the job. And then I just taught myself how to write. And it wasn't easy. I mean, it's, it's, writing is very hard. Writing for other people is very hard. How did you teach yourself how to investigate? I feel like that's a skill that not many people can do. Well, I just uh, utilized all the tools that I had as a journalist and the access I had as a journalist to follow my curiosity and my sense of moral outrage. I'm very moralistic. I'm one of those very American kind of 60s, you know, I was involved in women's lib and the gay rights and civil rights and all that stuff. So, uh, and I'm curious. So I see something that I think is wrong and I get angry and then I do something about it. And so I was able to have an arsenal weaponry to do something about it because I was a journalist. If I'd become a politician, I would have had an arsenal of weaponry, but then you have all that other nonsense you have to deal with, like popularity. And I didn't ever have to worry about that. Um, what skills do you think opinions and investigative journalists should arm themselves with going forwards into this social media dominated world? 
Yeah, I think that you have to have, I always say that I don't have a career. I have a personality disorder. I am very nosy and curious. I am very aggressive and I'm very high minded. And those skills in any other walk of life are a disaster. You can't climb the corporate ladder if you're nosy, aggressive and high minded. So that's why people say, are you retiring, Diane? How can I retire? It's not a career. It's a personality disorder. This is what I am. I can't do anything else. So I think if you have those traits, it is is the perfect vehicle to self-realize if you have those traits. Do you think most journalists have that in common? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I don't know. Uh, a lot of people that I've come across in journalism, now I have to distinguish between the people who run journalistic organizations who are kind of managers. They're kind of people skilled, good with people, not necessarily great writers, but they're really good at organizing and people. And, and then the grunts, the, the writers and so on. I think so, but I don't know. You know, there's a lot of journalistic specialities that you don't, you shouldn't be aggressive in. It's not appropriate. My son is a sports writer and a broadcaster, and he's very aggressive, very curious, and very high-minded. And he also has carved quite a niche out for himself, writing incisively and being tough. And he's, he's put a person in jail, a sports guy, a guy who was a pedophile. God. Yeah. He, so he, he found out about it from one of the players he had mentored years before, and he confided in my son. And my son said to me, oh, my God, what am I going to do? This is going to burn a lot of bridges. I said, perfect. Burn him. If there are bridges to this guy, burn him. You've got someone on the record saying that he did this to him when he was 12, and he's still coaching young men. You have an obligation. And he won, you know, lots of awards for it. So you have to have that kind of fire in your belly, I think. Even in sports, who would think? Do you think when you find out about things like that, journalists have a moral obligation to attempt to get it on the record and publish if they can? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you also have to be clever about it. I had one instance in my early career when I didn't have, you know, the kind of schlep or status that I have now. And so I was just a rookie reporter. I came across the story. I wrote the story. It was great. And then my boss said, I, I don't want you covering this. It was a worker strike. I don't want you covering this anymore. You know, I don't want you to go there because the advertisers are all upset. And then he winked at me and he said, but I'm giving you two days off. Go there, cover it, and sell it to the bigger papers. Let's get the story out. So there's more than one way to skin a cat. And sometimes I've come up against a wall and been unable to do something for whatever reason, maybe even a conflict of interest, you know, going after somebody that I know because I know, I know a lot of the big shots in Canada. So I pass the puck. To somebody else. As an editor, uh, what were the most difficult decisions you had to make? It, it wasn't, as an editor, the difficult, I, and I, I wrote a column while I was editor, the most difficult decisions as an editor were who to hire, who to fire, who to promote, who to demote, people things. That's very tricky stuff. That's very hard to do. And, and so I don't discount people that do that well. I found that very, very difficult. The first person I fired, I think I went home and cried all night because I knew what it would do to his life. But it was not, he shouldn't have been there and he couldn't do the job. So, you know, that was difficult. But as far as uh, the work itself, when I start to pursue something, unless uh, contrary facts or some other obstacle come my way, I just go to the end and I do it. I don't think about it. Have there only been any stories you've wanted to pursue? Yeah, I've had a few stories that have been killed on me. And I look back on, on reflection, I say, you know what? Good they did that. Probably a good idea. Sometimes you can go too far. 
you know, with kind of a vengeance or not sticking to what you really want to do, and that is to expose bad behavior, wrongdoing. What are reasons that a story will get killed, or, or when have you had a story killed? The stories that I've had killed are usually by the uh, libel lawyers. Is die, you know, this is tricky, and I think it it could expose us to, it could open us up to, and so then it becomes a a newspaper executive decision. And they always have you in the meetings and so on. And I, I just graciously say, that's fine. I don't want to ruin this paper. That's for sure. And, you know, very often there's another way to get at things. I wouldn't know how to draw the line on some of the things you've written on. I just wanted to ask you a bit about political journalism, since you're such a brilliant political journalist. What do you see as the role of journalism in politics? Should it facilitate debate or should it be steering politics? I have tried to, and we had a, uh, we had a rule in business journalism you know, when we did a, when there was an election and, you know, people are looking to you as to who you're going to endorse, uh, the editorial, and I would write the editorial, would be only about policy and not about the person at all. We do not do the person. We do not do the party. But what are their policies going to do to advance the cause of a more prosperous, inclusive economy or a fair, a level playing field? So would it be a policy oriented? So even now, while I, you know, take on individual persons, it's just because their policies are stupid. Stupid or ineffective. Would you say the same for somebody as divisive as Trump, where his personal seems to be also his political? You may not like hearing this. In my 50 years of watching, observing, reading leaders, he is the best communicator in 50 years. He has the messaging power of a tabloid editor. He is so good at this stuff. The wall, just using a metaphor that people can read into it anything they want on either side. The wall is, you know, blocking out good people or the wall is protecting my job or whatever you want to do with it. His message, that's about his tools. That's about his capability. He's a tremendous communicator. And I have forced myself to watch some of those rallies. And he has all of the rhetorical flourishes of a televangelist, as well as these wonderful phrases and a sense of humor. He's riveting, unfortunately, because behind it is a sociopath, a narcissistic, sociopathic, greedy human being. He's the accidental president. He should never have gotten there. No credentials, no experience, no education, but he's gotten there through guile and through an uncanny ability to communicate. Hate to admit it, but that's the facts. Reagan was very good. Churchill was a master. And both those men were real human beings, but this one. Do you think journalists can criticize Trump's character as well as his policies in this case, because he is so divisive and and what he says in the White House seems to be what he does in his personal life as well. Well, I think he was like a thunderbolt. I don't think any democracy has had a leader this awful suddenly hit the top. And I think people were shocked. You know, they just didn't know what to do at first. And now if you notice the intemperate, libelous bullying that he deploys is now being used by his opponents. People are out now calling him a racist and a narcissist and mentally ill. And I mean, it's just unbelievable what they are emboldened to say about him in terms of his character. And so, I mean, he asked for it. He asked for it. But is that good journalism? No, I mean, you can't start off doing that. 
but I think that journalists' job is to look at the policies first. But of course, his policies have been so awful. And then all that personal stuff about the women and the payoffs. I mean, he's just, he's just a gangster. He is a New York gangster, is what he is. He's Tony Soprano in the White House. And people are only now starting to understand it. And these are the people that watch and follow current events and policy and so on. The people that vote for him, I am not even sure they know that there's protests going on. I'm not even sure. You know, there's a whole swack of British people and American people and Russian people and Ukrainian people and Italian people who don't take any interest in the public conversation and they have a vote. Do you think there's a problem with people who are not interested in what's going on in the public sphere still being engaged with voting in our leaders? Well, that's a real problem. That's a real problem. I mean, if you look at, as I'm saying, you know, most of the democracies, there is a whole underclass of people that are not very educated, that don't read. They never read newspapers. And they watch telly, but they watch junk. They watch footy or they watch baseball. And that's, that's the extent. And they just talk to their equally stupid friends, equally uneducated culture that they live in. And that's, that's how they inform themselves. Or do they inform themselves or do they care to? And then there's a whole bunch of people that just don't participate at all in society or the economy. They're just left behind completely. And, and we can't do anything about that. I mean, people have to pay attention. I read your article, This Is Why America Burns, which I really enjoyed. Thank um, you. It was do you think it, Yeah. Do you think it's an American problem or do you think it's as significant in Canada and in the UK? What I wrote about there was really the basic... The fact that the DNA of the United States is social injustice. And that's why I opened with saying, I've always felt it since I left, America is a great country to live in if you're not old, poor, black, or, or, or if you're not old, sick, poor, or black. Great country to live in. But if you're any of those other things, it's not a great country to live in. And so the differences between the United States and European countries and social democracies like Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, South Korea, so we have a social safety net. So those folks are at least taken care of by the others. So it's a more civilized society, a more socially just society. And that's, that's the big difference. And that is unique to the United States, which is why I said it gives new meaning to the word American exceptionalism. American exceptionalism is about letting the bottom 30% fend for themselves and looking after the richer. I've been reading about your response to lockdown and indeed about your general opinions on the economic responses to COVID. Do you think America's failed their people and do you think Canada has done so too? Well, I, I, think, I think, you know, to be fair, I don't really fault the politicians for locking down. I fault the ones that didn't lock down soon enough, like your guy. You paid a price for that. But I don't fault them for locking down. Because we don't know, and we still don't know, this disease, its course, its attack, whether it comes back again in the same people that it missed the first time or whatever. And so to be fair, the lockdown and the social distancing and all of that was, I think, necessary to stop what could have been, you know, I mean, left to its own devices, the United States would have 2 million casualties by now. So they did the right thing. But having, if we had it all to do over again, and we knew what we know now, you only lock down people over 65 and people of any age who have medical, underlying medical problems. Those are the people that get this thing and that die from it. 
And so you can't punish and damage the economy and people to the extent we have. But I can't, I can't fault it. I can't fault it because who knew what was going on? It was very scary. It was very scary. And now, of course, having taken that political action, they're very reluctant to open it up again because can you imagine you're a politician, you've opened it up again, and suddenly five little kids in a nursery school die of COVID. That's a nasty headline. You don't want to take responsibility for that, so you continue to do it. Now, they did that, and at the same time, they also did another responsible thing, and that was to financially support people and provide a safety net for most of them through this piece. But, you know, I'm sure the same in Britain as it is in Canada and the United States and in Europe, once the lockdown and all that stuff is over, I would say that about half of the little restaurants and immigrant businesses, convenience stores, all of those will never reopen again because they just can't have lasted through the four or five months of being closed down. So the very vulnerable businesses will disappear. More will come along, but I think there's a permanent hit on our living standards probably as a result of this. Do you think both the economy and journalism will recover from this or whether they'll be forever changed? What this disease has done with the lockdowns and so on is it's accelerated the problems that anybody who had problems already have. So if you were a, a restaurant in London and you were selling takeout food, you were an immigrant, and you were not making much money, but you were making a small living, and now you don't have anything for four months and all the equipment you've invested in is worthless, It'll accelerate your bankruptcy. Uh, with newspapers, we've had a couple of bankruptcies and a couple of uh, shutterings going on since the COVID because it just takes newspapers that are not making any money. It just accelerates their demise. And so what you'll have is a lot of consolidation in the newspaper business. So the chain that I work for owns 80 newspapers in Canada. They're going to end up owning just about all of them because we're the only ones that have a little bit of money. And so we'll buy their readers and we'll buy their, you know, whatever's as they go under. And that's the way it happens. And then we'll close the ones that are small. Do you have the same sort of local journalism in Canada as there is here? Because it's completely died here over the crisis. Several newspapers have had to shut down. But it was dying anyway. Mm -hmm. So it was dying anyway. It was, it was newspapers were, you either had to be, what they called, the, the, the term was global. You had to be global globally world-class, cover events all over the world and blah, blah, blah. Or you had to be hyper-local. It'd be that guy who covered a city council in a small town in Ontario or in Devon, okay? And they could get a little audience and maybe make a few bucks selling ads, a newsletter or something like that. And so the days of lower levels of government, I don't know whether city councils in Britain are being covered properly by the journalistic crew. I doubt it. Our school boards aren't being covered. Our health boards are not being covered. Our provincial governments aren't being covered. It's just either the big national, international, or some people make a living doing hyper-local coverage. But even that's minimal. And that's a problem for a democracy. That's a big problem. It's important to hold our local leaders to account as much as the international and national ones. A hundred percent. Now, what's come up in the meantime, which was also a uh, fulfilling a well-financed big newspapers used to do, was you're finding think tanks and foundations and charities are filling this niche. Sometimes it's specialized. We have a, a foundation in the U.S. called Kaiser Foundation. They amass all the facts and figures about healthcare all the problems with healthcare. Uh, the Pew Foundation, they assemble all the facts on immigration problems and poverty. 
and then there's women's organizations and so on. And I'm sure you have the same thing. I mean, indeed, the Guardian itself is a charity that's running out of money, unfortunately. So, you know, what you've got is you have these not-for-profit entities fulfilling some of the journalistic role that newspapers, that a lively newspaper sector used to have.